Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Unlocking the Secrets to Retention with Dr. Doug Brandt. You'll earn two CD hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CD certificates at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CD hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor side account. Please allow two to four weeks for CD hours to appear on your account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask test questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its, in its entirety one week from today at linetechinstitute.com, where you may also access our conversions of all of our previous ASCII expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's, today's speaker, Dr. Doug Brandt. Dr. Brandt is, is the University and Strategic Partnerships Manager at Align Technology. He's been in private practice for the last 31 years and has a large adult patient base. Involved in orthodontic and inclusion education on both the undergraduate and graduate levels, he's on the cutting edge of the latest technologies and how they can be used to improve our dental knowledge. Dr. Brandt received his DMD from the University of Saskatchewan and his MS and Certificate in Orthodontics from the University of Detroit. So without further ado, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Brandt. Dr. Brandt, you now have the floor. Thank you very much, David, and welcome to everyone. It's great to have you on the line today, and most certainly in an area that we're going to talk about retention. I mean, how exciting can that be? Um, it's amazing how many people are interested in this, and when we uh, decide, or decided to uh, actually hold this Ask the Expert call and the subject that we were going to use, it, it's, it was amazing how many people actually indicated that retention was right up there in their list. Just want to let you know today that these are my opinions, my statements, and uh, most certainly take that into account when you, when you listen to the presentation. So let's get started and, and have a look at it. What I did was I tried to go in and, you know, for all the years that I've been in practice and the thousands of patients that I've treated, try to look back and say, okay, what are kind of the 10 secrets that allowed me to be successful in retention? And some of them may surprise you because some of them are actually practice management ones, which we, we're going to talk about initially. So it's not just a matter of which appliance do you use, because if you don't have the correct um, sort of uh, implementation process in your practice or the correct protocols, it doesn't matter what you use, it's all going to sort of fall apart. So. Let's look at the first one, knowing when and what to discuss about retention. I usually start right from the initial examination. There's, it's amazing how many patients have had relapse, and we look, when we look at the numbers of people that have uh, gone through orthodontic treatment, or even the people that have not gone through orthodontic treatment, um, what kind of things have happened in their dentition. We all know that regardless of whether you've had teeth moved around and positioned in your arch through orthodontics, we're all changing with age and the arches are constricting. So we're going to talk about evidence as we go through this, but I think it's important to let the patients know in your practice because people will come in and they'll say, no, I haven't had orthodontic treatment, but my teeth have started to crowd up. Well, this is a perfect time to go in there and discuss that, hey, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, these teeth are going to be eventually moving and you've got to figure out how to hold them there. And so it's important to talk about it right at the initial examination. It's also important to continue throughout your um, consultation and throughout the whole process of treatment talking about it. At the pre-treatment consultation, yes, you're going to go through informed consent, and informed consent is going to involve teeth have a tendency to move. 
what is the percentage that they move? You know, probably 100%. What's a significant amount of movement? Could be less than that, obviously. But we got to let them know that we have no idea which teeth are going to move. Um, and so if we don't implement a process to hold them straight, then everything we do is um, not for naught, but most certainly not going to be as, uh, you're not going to be as happy about it at the end. And then, of course, the day you deliver them, I think that's really important. And most certainly, if you're going to use some type of retainer that's very similar to uh, Invisalign aligners, um, I just incorporated that in there because this was a, a photo of that, then you want to discuss with them that retention may be very similar to this. So as you go throughout treatment, you're also going to be accustomed to having um, this type of retainer when you're done. So if you're able to accommodate this very well, most certainly you're going to be able to accommodate retention. Very important to discuss those aspects. And of course, every time they come in during their visit, not only you, but your team members are going to be on board and you're going to talk about retention. You're just going to talk about how's it going, maybe we're moving those teeth in that spot, these teeth have a tendency, you know, that twisted one you have there may have a tendency to move back. It never hurts to reinforce it throughout the process. And of course, probably the most important time is after your finished treatment and you're happy with everything, then before you go and deliver those retainers, that's when you want to really, really reinforce. By that time, the patient should know exactly what they're getting. They should know what program you have in place. Now what you're going to do is you're just going to reinforce that. And you're going to go back and you're going to review the records, and that's kind of a nice time for everybody to get together, even the team members in your, in your practice, and uh, you know, sit down with the patient and say, hey, you know, things look great, everything's fantastic, but you know, like anything else in uh, or the nightmares, your teeth have a tendency to move, so you've got to keep that under, uh, under control. What to discuss about retention? So when you're talking to the patients, as I mentioned to you before, we have no idea. Are those lower rotated central incisors? This patient went through orthodontic treatment before. What made them go back? What's interesting also about relapse and rotational relapse is people say many times, we're going to talk about overcorrection, but I'm going to point it out right now. People say, well, if I overcorrect the tooth in the opposite direction, then it will have a tendency to relapse into the correct position. In fact, this is interesting. Studies show that if you overcorrect it in the opposite direction, probably about 30% of those rotations, believe it or not, continue to move in that direction if they relapse. They don't actually come back. They keep going in the opposite direction. So we do have to be careful about what we do in terms of overcorrection, how we handle it. We're going to talk about that later on. But crowding, spacing, open bites, you know, if we knew, if we had sort of the crystal ball that we could go in and say, this is exactly what, you know, which teeth are going to move, then most certainly we would, uh, you know, be retired and uh, sitting somewhere on some island because that is the biggest question. So we do want to make sure that patients understand that even though your teeth are not that crowded in the beginning or that rotated or you this type of bite relationship, there's always a tendency they're going to go back and we're going to use retention 100% of the time. The other thing that you need is you need to have something simple that you can implement in your practice, something that's a protocol. One of the things I find is people say, well, this year I'm going to use fixed retainers. Next year I'm tired of the oral hygiene situation, so I'm going to use removable retainers. You've got to figure out a protocol. You've got to figure out a system. You've got to know ahead of time. You can't be making it up along the way. And that's why as we go through this presentation, hopefully I'll help you in that decision. And then your team members have to be all on board with this as well. And, of course, it's going to be up to both of you. In other words, it's going to be up to you and your patient and the trust that you have with your patient and how, how much 
weight you're going to place on the patient compared to how much weight you're going to take. That's kind of your philosophy, and we're going to talk about that later. I personally like to put as much responsibility on the patient because, as you know, they're eventually going to decide when they're going to stop wearing the retainers or whether they're going to, if they have a bonded retainer, when they're going to maybe have that removed. And the patients will make that decision. Even though we're going to try and influence as much as we can, we all know that they're going to, going to make that final decision. It's always good to show them other photos, show them that people that are wearing retainers, people that maybe didn't wear their retainers, it, it doesn't hurt. People nowadays know that their teeth are going to move, so it doesn't hurt to be upfront with them. The second topic is knowing the facts about retention. I wish we knew a ton more than what we do. And I'm going to point out at the end of the presentation, I'm actually going to supplement this presentation with evidence-based. In other words, I'm going to go and list some rules that are going to be online for you to be able to look at. Rules about what we know about teeth. What types of things, which types of malocclusions have a tendency to maybe relapse more than others? So I point out this nicely fitting occlusion. Well, certainly you can see that lower bonded retainer in the lower right-hand corner. Um, and you can just see how everything fits. Now, people would look in here and they'd say, but that upper arch may be a little bit constricted. Well, if you look at it from the anterior view, that maybe it is. But do the teeth fit together? Are those teeth, did they walk in the door having them fit that way? When you look at the occlusal view, it looks like it's rounded out nicely. But just remember, those teeth have to fit when we're done. We can make two individual beautiful arches that never fit. And, of course, what's going to happen? They're going to fit and they're going to fit at the expense of uh, relapse, even if you're wearing retainers. Depending on what type of retainers we go through, the presentation you'll see, but most certainly you just have to, be, have to be careful. So good occlusion makes a huge difference. We know that. Every study has proven that. The other thing that we know that people keep forgetting about, and I've been trying to sort of uh, make, this, uh, make people aware of this for a long time, is that it takes time after the orthodontic tooth movement for everything to stabilize. You can't go from full-time tooth movement, regardless of what you use, and go only to nighttime tooth movement. If you do, those fibers are going to reorganize, and they're going to reorganize how they want. And we know, we know, this is one of the things that we know, that seven months, not approximately, but almost to the day, that uh, if you don't use full-time retention for that period of time, you're going to have a tendency for a lot more relapse. Will it relapse 100%? Many times it will if you don't follow this rule. So I think it's really important to understand that and letting patients know ahead of time that, hey, for the first year, we're going to go just like you do with the aligners. That's going to be part of, almost part of your treatment. The other thing we know is that getting teeth crowns uprighted over roots or roots uprighted over crowns centered in the alveolar base, huge difference huge, huge difference. And of course, you can see, I mean, I just use this example because it shows nicely where the forces are applied to these attachments on these teeth. And really what we're trying to do is upright the roots. And of course, that's a really important part. We know that. We know that from our history of orthodontic tooth movement. When you only use in fixed appliances round wires, it just doesn't move the roots and it aligns the crowns. If in the past with a Invisalign aligners, if we don't use attachments and upright the roots, most certainly we're not going to end up in the same amount of stability. And this just shows you here, and one of the interesting things is open bites, and as you can see how the open bites closed. Uh, some of the research does show that, uh, and some of the things that are happening now in the research with open bites is that uh, we're actually able to keep them closed as long as we can end up with anterior stops, anterior contacts. If you leave any little space in there, most certainly the tongue's going to push that, push that bite open. So really important to get coupling 
and to get uh, you know the right amount of tooth movement. So as you can see, those teeth were out of the alveolar base and we brought them into that position in that schematic view. So let's talk about the candidates. Which retainers are we actually going to discuss today? Now I, I put Invisalign retainer up there just for whatever reason in terms of, but there are other uh, you know sort of clear retainers that are out there, other materials that are used. We'll talk about those later on. But we really need to look at, uh, there's bonded, there's fixed, and usually it's cuspid to cuspid. Very seldom do we go back from there. Sometimes it's less than cuspid to cuspid. And I think uh, pretty well everybody knows today that the best bonded or um, retainers or fixed retainers are bonded to each individual tooth. Trying to get uh, a wire adapted extremely well to all those teeth and only bonded to the cuspids, pretty difficult. You really have to have somebody that can bend in around in the proximal areas and then that's hard to seat and have it passive. So bonded to all the teeth I think is what people use nowadays. Uh, some type of suck down retainer, of course, a combination of the two, bonded and, uh, and removable. And then quarter, sort of the Holly retainer, which been, has been around for ages, and the history behind that is really based on at the time when actually bands were fitted on the teeth. There weren't even bonded brackets, and they used this to allow settling. So it's known as the best sort of somewhat controlled relapse retainer, but it's difficult to control that because there's loops in the wire, that wire has a tendency to move. So we're going to see how that may not be your best choice, especially if you're using something aesthetic. The spring aligner came into effect because of the holly. So the holly came before the spring aligner. The spring aligner was used because people noticed that there was relapse. And they said, well, why don't we build in sort of the capability with these all these springs and everything from front to back. And maybe we can, if the teeth do have a tendency to relapse, the patient can go back to using this uh, retainer full-time, and unlike the holly, we're not able to individually move teeth in the anterior, this spring aligner should help us do that. So what makes up an ideal retainer? I mean, how are you going to make your choices? What, what, what kind of criteria do you use? Your criteria may be different than mine, but this is the criteria that I use. It's got to be aesthetic, especially if it's something that, especially nowadays, I mean, nobody even wants brackets on their teeth as much as they want clear ones. So everybody's thinking aesthetically. And when you look at uh, the aesthetic appliances, you can see that the fi fixed rear wire on the inside obviously doesn't show, and the combination doesn't show, but the spring aligner and the holly most certainly probably wouldn't be my first choice for an aesthetic retainer. How about keeping all the teeth in position? We're not just talking about the anteriors. How about if you rotated bicuspids? How about if you rotated your molars? How about if you expanded a little bit? which appliance then allows you to keep those teeth in that position. And as you can see, most certainly some type of suck down acrylic or some type plastic uh, retainer, that, as you can see in the middle there. And of course the bonded, the combination one will give you that. A bonded fixed retainer, if you only use a bonded fixed retainer in the lower and a removable in the upper, the lower posterior teeth are gonna settle. And most of the time they settle by derotating. In other words, especially second by cuspids. They function best when they're rotated measly, so those teeth will rotate measly. They use up more space when they rotate measly. So when they use up more space, what's going to happen to that space? Are the other teeth going to assume that space? Well, that, all I'm talking about is those teeth are going to move. And if they move in the back, they're going to put pressure many times towards the front, especially if we've done expansion. So you have to be thinking about this all the way through your treatment. Number three, easy to keep everything clean. I'm not just talking about posteriors, I'm talking about anteriors, I'm talking about being able to make sure that the tissue is 
in a, a tissue is kept extremely clean. We know that one of the things that will actually help you in retention and help you in stabilization is having well-supported bone and tissue. So those are the things that you got to look at. And which one of these, obviously anything that you can take out, most certainly is going to help you in terms of being able to keep things clean. What about lasts a long time? And most certainly you can see anything that uh, sort of we'll talk about length of uh, wear and how long they... Uh, say Invisalign retainer or an Essex retainer, anything that's in a type of uh, removable uh, retainer, most certainly the ones that I show in here will last longer. That's why you have to have a program in place. In other words, if you're going to use just an Invisalign retainer on its own and not have the Vivera program, or if you're going to use just an Essex retainer on its own and not have a program built about around it where you're going to use more than one, they're not going to last long enough. So you have to take that into account most importantly. Number five, allows for continued tooth movement. And I think this is probably one of the biggest things that I notice, at least when I, and that's one of the reasons I like Invisalign uh, retainers, is because I usually try and make it off of the stage of treatment. In other words, I don't take a new impression. I ask for the retainers to be made off of most likely the last stage in treatment, depending on whether it's the last stage of regular treatment or in a case refinement because that I believe that even though they will look like they fit perfectly, um, there's still some just little bit of movement that needs to take place. Now, I'm going to show you an example of a case at the end of uh, this presentation that's going to uh, help bring this home, take this home for us. So as you can see right here, allows for continued movement. I did throw the Springer liner in there because of all the springs and everything that are involved in it. It, it, it could possibly, if you actually set up the case, it could possibly allow you to do that. But most certainly it's, it has nothing to do, it's not based off of a computer-generated uh, treatment and it's not based off of, uh, of what's built into that retainer. It's more of trying to recapture what you've lost. And that's the next point that I put in here is recapturing any slight changes. And we're talking slight, we're talking 0.25 millimeters or whatever, but let's assume the teeth do move. And you do want to go back and say, you know, if you wear this full time, I'm going to be able to take those minor little changes that you have and recapture them. And I think these two retainers have a tendency to do that. What about this one? It depends on your philosophy. Placing the responsibility of retention into the patient's hands. Which one of these allows you to actually do that? If that's your philosophy and if you, you know, in your practice decide that you're going to do your best you can and you're going to get those teeth aligned, but then your job's over, which one of these retainers allows you to do that? And, you know, having a program, having something that you can give to the patient and say, hey, you know, we know that teeth move. We have no idea which teeth are going to move and which one of your teeth are going to move, even out of all the groups of teeth that you have there. You know, it would be nice to have something that we could actually allow them to understand that it's now your responsibility. So I really like that, and I think that's, the tendency, that's the way retention is actually going in the 21st century. That's why my initial slide that showed the iPhone or a smartphone or whatever one you want to use in retention application, I think that's kind of where we're, where we're headed, where you know, people are going to walk around, they're going to try and figure out what they want to do almost in the retention on their phone somewhat. Minimal adjustments needed, very important. In other words, how often do you have to see the patient? The Holly retainer, you used to always see them every two weeks, every month because that upper wire with that loop, that loop would open up and the wire would come away from the teeth. And if it did, then what would happen is the teeth would come forward. When the anterior teeth come forward, 
then the posterior teeth collapse. When the posterior teeth collapse, then all of a sudden the palatal part of the retainer doesn't fit. Once that happens, and if they come in and you adjust those loops and pull on those anterior teeth, now you start to put pressure because of the posterior expansion, if you get it on the case, was lost. So the Holly retainer, really the history, it was made mainly to hold extraction cases where everything was constricted in the arch and you weren't doing expansion. I think that's something we've gotten away from. I don't think the pendulum has swung that way. Most people are doing some type of uprighting over basal bone, some type of expansion. So minimal adjustments needed. I think that's really important, especially when you start figuring out your fees and everything in your practice. How about can be made without seeing the patient? Hmm, interesting concept, right? So if your patient happened to move somewhere and you didn't have access to that patient or they didn't have access to your office and they were getting to the last stage of their retention and decided that they needed a sort of another uh, prescription or another supply, then most certainly if you, if you happen to make your retainers off of a computer-generated uh, treatment plan, then you could go in and ask for the same. And so I think that's, that's kind of one of my favorite ones. And of course, last of all, has a program built around it. And uh, as far as I know, Vivera, I mean, everywhere I looked, it's, it's built around it and being able to make it uh, work for the patient. So I guess the score, if we added it all up out of 10, um, and you started to take that into account, uh, most certainly Invisalign retainer or other retainers that you actually um, you know, decide that you're gonna use a similar program. But I think it's kind of nice to, to look at all of this criteria and base your decision upon that. How about knowing which cases need what types of retainers? And I think this is the one that everybody you know, wants to know is, hey, if I have this type of malocclusion in the beginning, is there a specific retainer that can take care of it? Unfortunately, we can't determine all of those. So let's assume that you expanded the anterior cuspids. And when I talk about expansion, I'm talking about uprighting the crowns over the roots and trying to expand buccally. Now, very, very seldom are you going to be successful, no matter what you use, to expand roots because the bone it just usually doesn't allow for it, other than if you start to lose bone in recession, but that's not what we're after. So when you expand cuspids, and I think this is one of the rules that pretty well everybody in the whole orthodontic community, anybody that treats any cases orthodontically will tell you, um, cuspid expansion has a tendency to relapse. Why? Because not only is it relapsing from the orthodontics, but it's something that's taking place in every single one of our mouths, um, sort of a natural a maturation process. So the arches are constricting no matter what. So if at all possible, if we can round out those teeth, if we can actually move those teeth back in the arch. So let's assume we're doing IPR and we actually get a posterior IPR and we move the cuspid back into a wider part of the arch. Is that cuspid expansion? No, because we're moving it back into the alveolus, sort of one of the key points I pointed out. If you're trying to gain all the space in the anterior, but through cuspid expansion, not doing, creating any space in the posterior, yeah, then you're gonna get a lot more relapse. So it's how we approach these. But most certainly, if you wanna keep that cuspid expansion, you're big into expansion, you're gonna to have to use a fixed, and then you're gonna to have to use a combination of the two, I think. How about posterior expansion? Well, a fixed wire in itself, is not gonna do that. Holly most certainly isn't gonna do that because it allows for that relapse. So I kinda gave the benefit to the spring aligner. It has more wires in the posterior. The Holly many times doesn't cover that many teeth and it's supposed to be held in by plastic. But remember, the Holly was made for cases where we don't do expansion. Proclination of incisors. Huh. How often do we do that? Well, 
often. So we need to make sure, and especially when we take those teeth and move them forward bodily, we've got to have something in there that allows us to wrap that tooth. We cannot have something that's only going to contact the tooth in a very small surface area. So uh, when I looked at these, most certainly I, I felt that, uh, and I think everybody with lower anterior crowding right away starts to think bonded retainers. But um, having something like a removable that has full coverage will help you in that as well. Retroclining teeth, this is what's interesting, and all the studies show that retroclined teeth, um, you know, depending on the space, but if the teeth are upright over basal bone and they actually have pretty good function, believe it or not, they're much more stable than lower anterior crowding. So retroclining teeth, and especially if you do it in what format? Yes, in relative format. In other words, bring the two, if the roots are in a good position, most of the time they are, and you upright the crowns over the roots, as I pointed out previously, then most certainly it's going to you know, be much more stable. And you can see that any fixed wire, I don't usually care to use fixed wires on the upper anterior. And knowing that those teeth are going to be somewhat more stable at the end of treatment, I'm not that keen on putting something up in the lingual where it's going to be difficult to clean. Remember the criteria of an ideal retainer. So if you don't, then who's going to clean it and how are you going to take care of it and what happens if it comes loose? All of those different things make it sometimes not the most ideal retainer. So lower anterior, you know, bonded retainers work, but and full coverage does work extremely well for that. Relative intrusion. In other words, what happens if we level the curve of speed? What happens if we bring our lower anteriors forward? Well, a lot of times that's tipping type movements, and you need to hold those teeth in that position. So the more you can work on your back teeth and the less amount of proclination that you can get away with, um, especially if you've got a good, you know, good inter-incisal angle and those teeth have a pretty good position, then most certainly you're going to try and, uh, you know, stay away from that. But if you do have to procline them, then you're going to have to hold them there. And a fixed retainer is probably your best treatment of choice. And then something over top, because many times, not only do when you procline lower anteriors, what reaction happens in the posterior? Expansion. So the two have to go hand in hand. So you, if you think you can just get away with a fixed retainer, yeah, it'll look fine, but when the patient walks in the door again, you're going to see that there's kind of a step from the bicuspid uh, out to the cuspid, and the cuspid's in a good position, the lower incisor's in a good position, but now your arch is collapsed, and then that affects the upper arch. So you've got to be thinking about the combination of, of tooth movements and what happens. Pure intrusion, um, anything that's going to actually cover the incisors, a holly retainers don't work well for this. Just again, as I mentioned to you before, they don't wrap the tooth. There's not a much, very much surface area to hold those teeth in that position. Um, and the spring aligner as well really doesn't do as, as good a job just because of the surface area. So having something that caps the tooth, um, so a combination fixed removable would be the way to go in that type of case. How often do we have... Um, you know, pure intrusion, again, that's where you go back and you look at your clean check, and that's how you plan your retention. So in, in the beginning, you describe, as I mentioned to you in the first slide, you describe to your patient what you're going to use. And then as you get the clean check back at the pretreatment consultation and you discuss that with the patient, then you have a much better idea of what you're going to use. And most of the time, it's going to be pretty well the same thing, but you're just going to have to figure out kind of what's your philosophy and how you want to approach that. We'll cover that later here. So relative extrusion works extremely well, okay? And uh, again, you, when you're moving teeth and closing spaces, anything that holds them together fixed-wise is fantastic. But when you bring teeth back in the anterior, again, just the same thing as when you do relative intrusion, 
the upper arch does expand. Even if it's not built into the treatment, you'll still get some expansion. And when you, if you don't hold it together with some type of removable retainers along, along with the fixed, that's going to have a tendency to collapse and then is going to force the anteriors out. So people say, yeah, the space always opens up. Well, it does because of many times the type of retainers that we use. So fixed retainer, combination retainer will hold that in position. Pure extrusion is probably the most difficult, and that's why I kind of took the, uh, um, the, you know, the retainer that uh, wraps the tooth. For whatever reason, anytime you've got uh, an open bite and you're doing pure extrusion of teeth, if I'm going in there and I'm using rubber bands and elastics or I'm using attachments and I'm literally extracting those teeth out of the socket and bringing them together, you've got to have something that's going to hold them in that position. Most of the time it's from cuspid to cuspid or many times just the incisors, but you're going to have to use a fixed retainer. And as well, when you're bringing those teeth down, it does use up more space, so you usually need to have some expansion in the back. And these anterior open bites usually do have expansion in the back. So combination retainer is used when you're trying to do this. So if, it, if at all possible, try and do relative extrusion before you're ever going to resort to the pure extrusion just because of all the different concepts. And, of course, it's a neat area, and I want you to encourage you to go to, on to uh, the Align Tech Institute site and most certainly look up anterior open bites and look at as much as you can in what's being done these days because most of the time what we're doing in closing open bites with, uh, with aligners is actually intruding posterior teeth. Really incredible. So if I can intrude posterior teeth and not have to do this pure extrusion, boy, I'm going to be a much happier camper for a number of reasons. Translation, bodily movement. Which one of these does a great job? Well, Again, anytime you're closing space, especially extraction space, there's always a tendency, as long as you get those roots upright over bone, but even then that small little extraction space wants to open up. So a bonded cuspid to cuspid retainer in itself isn't going to do that for you because if there's an extraction space or there's bodily movement anywhere, you've got to hold that in position with a fixed wire as well as with a uh, removable over top of it. Anterior rotations. So anterior rotations, just like proclination, anytime you're confined in the anterior, um, uh, and how often do we have to use expansion to gain room for crowding? Well, you know that's one of the number one things that we like to use, and we're not talking about you know, expanding outside the bone, we're talking about uprighting teeth over basal bone, but you're going to have to use a fixed retainer if you want those things to stay perfectly straight, or a removable suck-down overlay, um, like Vivera or like Essex, and, uh, but usually the combination is the one that's, if you're at all concerned, and depending on your philosophy, that's the one you may want to go with. Posterior rotations, um, got to have something that covers the posterior. Got to have something that wraps the whole tooth. You can't have just a piece of plastic on the lingual. You've got to have plastic around the buckle, interproximally, wherever you can, occlusally, that's going to help you hold that tooth. And like I said, the... Probably one of the interesting things in the case I'll show you at the end of treatment is we didn't even rotate those. They functioned perfectly where they were. So those come in that way because they function best rotated mesially. Now, sometimes you do need that space and everything. You do want to derotate them or just to make it look good. But um, most certainly you have to think about um, whether you're going to you know, uh, have to keep those teeth in that position forever with retention. So what role does overcorrection play? Because many people have talked about overcorrection. If I just went in and actually added more of this tooth movement to it and pushed it in the opposite direction that it began, then I would have a much better stable result afterwards. 
In, a, in fact, it'll just completely move right into the perfect position. It'll all settle into position. And I guess, you know, everywhere we're looking in the literature today, very seldom do I see anything about settling. Settling of the occlusion, most certainly it's, it's one of those things that uh, people still talk about. But I don't want to take that into account. I don't want to, I'd just as soon finish it the best I could in the beginning rather than having it settle. But one of the things that we do know is if you're making anterior-posterior movements, um, overcorrection is important in terms of overjet and overbite. Not so much about the movements, but what you try and do if you're doing class two correction or even class three correction is try and get it to the point where you've almost got them edge to edge in a class two and in a class three leave them with some overjet. So um, different than if you're treating crowding and, and spacing cases, but I think that's one of the things you want to think about. Overexpansion, the transverse dimension, and when I say overexpansion, I'm not talking about leaving interproximal spaces. I'm talking about making sure that I get the teeth upright over basal bone. And the most important thing is that if I do do that, then I need to make sure that the lower fits with the upper. And I know that uh, in Costa Rica, being there for a number and number of years, a lot of doctors would ask for overexpansion, and they would say, but I want the occlusion to be perfect in both arches. Well, sometimes we have to overexpand in one arch, uh, creating space in the upper arch, or we have to overexpand the other arch, creating space in the lower arch, and then all of a sudden the teeth don't fit together and we've got this interproximal space. But So overexpansion, meaning if you do have a collapsed, a real collapsed arch, you're going to want to overexpand a little bit. Do I have an exact number on that? No, the number is the occlusion. And uh, people say, well, can't you just allow it to relapse afterwards? Sure, but what are you going to do with the anteriors if that actually created any interproximal reduction? So try not to be thinking about moving teeth out of, in a position in space and then allowing it to actually come back to where you know they fit together. We do know that uh, vertical open bite, opening bites, it's really important to add some extra there. There is no doubt about it. I don't think there's anybody out there, and we do know that this does help in retention. So when people talk about how much do you actually, extra intrusion do you add in the arch, I would say everybody's talking about two millimeters, probably a millimeter per arch. Some people will actually finish a deep bite case on the computer um, edge to edge. Well, certainly we're uh, not going to do that clinically, but uh, we do want to make sure that we at least get a, probably a 10 to 20% more uh, overbite correction because, as we know, not only are the arches constricting, but as they do through life, those bites are deepening. So, so many times it's, you know, there's other factors involved, but I think you need to be thinking about opening bites more than what you would ideally do on the ClinCheck. Vertical close a bite, same situation. When I look through the literature and when I look through the research that has been done lately, and people talk about relapse and open bites, here's what we know. We know that if we take teeth and sort of, ex sort of extract them or literally pull them down bodily, absolute extrusion, those teeth will have a tendency to move back up. People talk from 50 to 60%, probably we're talking 30 to 40, but 30, 40% relapse. So in other words, you need to overcorrect that to that amount if you're doing uh, pure extrusion. If you're doing relative extrusion, if you're bringing teeth back and just uprating crowns over roots and closing the bite that way, many times you can get by with 10% overcorrection. The most important thing in holding that and preventing the tongue from getting in there is no space. You need contact all around the arch. You need interocclusal contacts from the lateral to lateral, cuspid to cusp, wherever the open bite was. 
if you allow even a slight bit of daylight in there, that tongue is going to force its way in there because it has to create a seal to swallow. So it's not the tongue's problem. It's not the tongue's fault. It's really a matter of we need to establish that overbite. And all of the research today is showing how, how important that is. Bodily movement. When you take a lower incisor, when you take a bicuspid, where let's assume the root is out of position. Let's assume in like a situation like this where the roots are actually palatal. Yeah, I could tip the crown straight out and align it in the arch, but if I leave that root behind, that tooth it's going to upright over itself. And you're just building in relapse. So um, regardless of what you do, if you're using Invisalign, you're going to, or even whatever system you're going to use, you're going to want to make sure that you overcorrect that and get that root in its proper position in the alveolus. And um, if anything, even get it a little bit farther and then the crown and upright the crown over top of that root. So otherwise, you're going to build in a lot of relapse. And this just points it out in lateral incisors. We see it all the time that the lateral incisor could be moved forward. What I'm pointing out here is this is a superimposition tool from uh, an Invisalign case. And uh, the blue is the before, uh, people that aren't familiar with this, and the white is afterwards. So you can see how when you look at the facial surface of 6, 7, and 8, you can see how you see all white all the way from the incisal edge all the way down to the gingival margin. What that means is that tooth was moved forward bodily. And you can see where the root on that upper right lateral incisor is back. So if we just tip it forward, it's going to want to have a tendency to tip back. Even if you've got some overbite, it's still going to want to have a tendency to go back. So you want to make sure that you get those roots uprighted over basal bone. And uh, same thing on the lower anteriors. So as you can see, 25, 24, and 23, those teeth were moved forward bodily. You can see it from the lingual where you can see that blue shadow starts back and uh, now it ends up way forward and you can see that it's all white on the facial surface which means that tooth was moved forward bodily. It's going to be a much more stable result than if you just tip the tooth forward through proclination. And bicuspid extraction cases, and many times uh, not that many cases need extraction, especially when you can get by with some posterior and anterior IPR, but there are times when you may consider doing that and if you do, same situation. You want to overcorrect like on tooth number 11 and number tooth number 13, that bicuspid and that cuspid, those roots have to be uh, overcorrected somewhat to make sure that they, the crowns don't want to tip back over top of them. So built into your uh, treatment is something that you want to make sure that you, you accomplish ahead of time before you go into it. So we've been talking all throughout the presentation about finishing and how important it is to get everything as close as you can. The better the occlusion, all of those types of things. Does it mean we can throw out the retainers? No. Does it mean that we're going to have much better results? Does it mean we're going to have less relapse even if we did? Absolutely. So just some tips on how to finish precisely. So if you begin with a good occlusion, and I see this all the time, um, you know, when it's all socked in like that right-hand side on this patient. When you look at the initial clincheck, initial bite, and the photos, that's set up exactly the same. Those teeth are fitting perfectly. What I do is at least when I want a setup, regardless of whether you're using Invisalign or whether I'm using a wax setup, I want to make sure that the end result, whatever it takes, I want that posterior occlusion to look exactly the same. So if it's socked in like that, maybe I'm going to change AP, maybe I'm going to change expansion, maybe I'm going to move the teeth, but it has to look the same. And in same meaning, it has to be socked in. 
Does it mean that every single tip is exactly this? No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I don't want to see is a bunch of diamonds. Diamonds meaning I don't want to see a bunch of openings, a bunch of airspace in there where I can see these um, spaces interproximally or interocclusally. We know that the better it fits throughout treatment, the better it's going to stay that way. So even if I'm rotating teeth, even if I'm expanding arches, you got to make sure that both of those. So I hear it all the time, and that's probably one of the biggest things that um, you know, doctors don't look at is don't look at the final stage of, or look at the final setup and look at that and say, you know, I made these changes, but does it look like it's going to fit? Does it look like everything is really um, uh, socked in, as we would, we would say? Okay, I mean, we wouldn't do that with uh, other things we do in dentistry. We would, you know, create a restoration or do whatever we have to to make sure that those teeth, teeth fit appropriately. The other thing is to monitor, monitor the occlusal contacts from beginning to end. From the time you take your photographs using articulating paper and finding out where the patient is biting, regardless of how you're going to set it up, it's important to understand where you are in the beginning so that you can actually follow it every single time the patient comes in. Having articulating paper on your tray set up is going to help you understand whether your clean check, whether the tooth movements are taking place and whether those tooth movements, you know, those, say you're moving a tooth bodily, you want to be able to see that contact point change. But the teeth that maybe you're not even moving, like posteriors, or maybe a, a second bicuspid, you want that occlusal position to, to remain the same. So it really just helps you monitor treatment by looking at that. So initial, looking at the occlusal marks, monitoring as you go in throughout treatment on this patient right here. We were just monitoring the occlusal marks. As you can see, still attachments on there. Uh, most certainly what we saw was that we had some premature contacts on teeth. We expected that. We went back, looked at our ClinCheck treatment plan for that stage, and yeah, it looked like we were moving the lower anteriors forward, so we expected to see what we saw on you know, our, uh, our photos here. So clinically, you're going to do this, and then periodically it doesn't hurt to take some photographs as you go along. So there is the, this patient actually at the end of treatment, and we'll show you how... Uh, you can monitor that, and then you can see after five years of retention, you can see how everything's settled in beautifully and all the contact points are established nicely. So we'll show you uh, this case later on and discuss it in a little more detail. But monitoring your occlusal contact points is going to allow you to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. And don't give in easy. You'd be amazed how many times, you know, the patient's ready to throw in the towel. Everything looks great, Doc. I mean... Um, and I don't, not trying to encourage you, most certainly the more you can do to monitor the occlusal contacts and, you know, plan your treatment ahead of time. But uh, many times you do need a refinement. If you do need a refinement, go in and make those extra changes. It's so like on this patient, the lateral incisors were restored. You can see on the left-hand side, we had finished the bulk of the treatment, but we still needed space, more space or uh, equal distributive space around the laterals. And we wanted to bring them forward a bit because they're edge to edge. So before we did the veneers on the laterals, we wanted to make sure that those, those laterals were brought forward. We weren't worried about overbite because we're going to build the overbite into the restoration. But we do want to make sure that he's not banging on those restorations after we're done the treatment. So it doesn't hurt. Think about retention. Think about finishing. Thinking about finishing precisely so that you're building into it. I can tell you that he has a very stable result. Those lateral incisors will never go back. They can't. They're built in, the retention's built into them. Um, will the lower anteriors move? I didn't show the original. Yeah, there was a tooth that's back, so most certainly he has to continue on with retention. But we've built in a lot of safety guards along the way. And then, as I mentioned before, plan in easier movements if you can. 
And most of the time, you can. So it's not like, and, and we most certainly try and do that. I know, at least when I was down in, in Costa Rica, we try and do that in terms of uh, setting up the ClinChecks. But have a look at your case, and any time you can build in tooth movements that you know where you're upgrading teeth over basal bone, fine. If you do need to make bodily movements, just plan for it and understand where you're going. Also, anticipate auxiliary techniques from the beginning. Don't wait to the end because any times then people are in a rush and they're going to pull things down quickly and the faster you do something, the faster it may have a tendency to go back, right? So planning those in the beginning, you may never need them. But knowing ahead of time that there's a good possibility somewhere along the way, as we point out in the left-hand side where we're actually running elastics inter-arch elastics where class 2 correction is taking place, we want to make sure that we were overcorrecting that, and right? We talked about where that the teeth are moving in the right direction, that we planned at the right time in treatment. And of course, the one on the right-hand side is at the end of treatment, and it was kind of planned at the end. You can see there was attachment on that, so now it wasn't planned to extrude that tooth. The tooth didn't come along as it wanted to. Now we have to pull it down. Now we're going to have to kind of figure out how much should we bring it down and move it back up. So the more you can plan ahead of time, the better off it's going to be in the long run. So as you can see throughout the whole presentation, I've been talking over and over again about um, you know having a program, having something in your office that's going to allow you to implement what you need to. And I think this is probably, besides all the others being important, I think this is most certainly one of the most important. And uh, based on your philosophy. So people, some people, always place fixed retainers, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not here to tell you sort of uh, which retainer you should use specifically. What I'm here is to give you the options. Give you the options, let you know what I feel is, you know, meets my criteria for retainer. But um, many times people, it's based upon your philosophy. And if your philosophy is to actually make sure that you want everything under your control, then fixed retainers is the way to go. Now, if we did make posterior movements, then you have to be thinking, should I actually have a removable retainer over top of the fixed retainer? Many people will say, if I can just keep those anteriors straight, I'll live with the posterior movements, and I'll just keep taking that retainer off, and I'll keep changing it, and I'll keep monitoring it, and I'm going to see the patient frequently, and no matter what, I'm going to keep control of that case. And we do know, we do know that Fixed retainers will keep the anterior teeth. In most cases, keep those anterior teeth where, they're, where they were moved to. So it does give you certain options, but I don't think it, um, you know, I, I personally anyways don't like to have that, uh, that kind of control all on my side because uh, it, most certainly I'd, I'd like to have something where the more I can give to the patient, the better off it's going to be because eventually they're going to get somewhere in their life and it may not be at your office, they may have moved somewhere, and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, well, let's take that thing out. It's been in there long enough. And one of the things that we do know about retention and that we do know about relapse is that the first 10 years are critical, extremely critical. The um, next 10 years are not as critical in terms of the amount of relapse. So the first 10 years, if you, let's assume that you, you wear a retainer only at night in the beginning, and you don't have a fixed retainer, or you put this fixed retainer and you take it out after five years, because that was one of the things when I went through my grad school, they said, hey, yeah, take it out after five and see what happens. We know we're going to end up with a significant amount of relapse. If we leave it in for 10 years, we're going to have a lot less, probably 30% less relapse. 
If we leave it in for another 10 years, that's going to knock it down to where you're probably going to about 20%. Do we ever get to the point where we don't need anything? No. But we do know after 30 years of retention, fixed retention, um, it most certainly is going to become much more stable. But think about managing that for 30 years. The other one is to uh, kind of put it all in the patient's control. In other words, uh, give them a program. Right from the beginning, you discuss that. This is my philosophy. These are the reasons. I mean, I want you to keep them clean. I'm, you're used to wearing something like that. It allows you to take them out. Here's all the advantages. And put it into the patient's hands. And that, to, to me, is, is really important. Now, if I have really crowded teeth or if I have something where I'm really concerned or the patient actually says, hey, um, I would just as soon have something fixed in there. I had something fixed before and it was fine. It just all of a sudden, you know, we removed it for whatever reason or my wisdom teeth came in. That's one of the things we know that wisdom teeth do not cause teeth to recrowd. But, um, you know, it, it's going to be up to you and the patient. But most certainly you're going to have a plan. Your philosophy is going to be that you have a program. And to me, this is probably the program to be able to to use for any patients, even if they're not orthodontically treated. As I mentioned before, even if a patient comes in and says, hey, my teeth, you know, it's natural to have your teeth crowd with age? Absolutely. Will they continue to move? Absolutely. Is there any way of stopping this? I mean, I don't really don't want to move anymore. I can live with what I have? Absolutely. Here's the program. So just think about uh, all of those different aspects when you're, when you're thinking about retention. And of course, one of the the ones that people have a tendency to go with quite often is a combination. So they want to make sure those anterior teeth look perfect. But they're also concerned about the tooth movements they made in the posterior. And having a combination does share the load a bit, in other words, but you still need to see the patient. So all the things that you had around a fixed retainer, you're still going to have to deal with that. And you're going to see when we talk about protocol in a few slides, um, how do you manage that? I mean, and how much time is it going to actually take? So if you added up the treatment time from the time that you took record or initial exam all the way through the end of retention, you know, and divided by the number of dollars you took into the office, you've got to be thinking about the economical, uh, economics of the situation as well. Regardless of what philosophy you choose, you better make sure that the patients and your staff, uh, obviously yourself, um, bought into it, but everybody needs to have bought into it. So that when anybody asks about, uh, hey, Dr. Brandt's retention was, loves to use Vivera, loves to use those retainers, and here's the reasons why. And when a patient's out, they know exactly when they're finished treatment, that's the reason use, you use what you use, and here's the responsibility on the patient. So it's really important communication among those. The other nice thing is that um, it's nice to have um, a post-orthodontic treatment retention letter. You've got to have something that talks about teeth are going to move, you know, I, I guarantee it. Which teeth are going to move? Well, you don't have to get into specifics because you've done that throughout the whole retention. You talked about it. They understand. You talked about You showed them the tooth movements that took place. But it's really important. And I think it's a nice way of being able to show them before and after so they can actually, you know, see where they were and where they, how far they went. And uh, most certainly want to keep them, those teeth that way. And it's good to obtain post-treatment records at least photos so you can compare those down the road. You can use them for presentations, you can use them for marketing, you can use them for whatever, but I think the most important reason is to be able to compare those, and I'll show you later on in the presentation why. And then you need to establish a wear protocol. So understanding what's taking place and knowing that 
it takes seven months for things to reorganize, I think you have to be thinking about how you manage your retention program. We all want to be nice. And we know that patients kind of get burned out. That's why right from the beginning is, hey, you know, you've been great with these now. Just give me another year. And you'll see my, my protocol. Even though it's seven months, I stretch it out to a year. So here's my protocol. This is not the company's protocol or anybody. This is what I use. First year full-time. I'm hoping that I'll get at least the six to seven months of full-time out of that. And full-time means just like you're wearing your uh, Invisalign aligners, and uh, don't leave them out for more than 30 minutes and make sure you have them all the time and when you change your from one retainer to the next to a new one you start by doing that at night and um, at night time so it's just important that the patient understands that full time second year i take it down four hours i mean i take it down to four hours and sleeping time why do i do the four hours well, if any teeth want to move, they're going to move during the day, and you may not notice them. You may not even be able to feel them with your tongue. But when you go and put your retainer back in again, it should not be tight. I mean, it should not go in there and start to really squeeze those teeth. What it'll do is if a tooth does happen to move a little bit because of how, how precise it is, you will find out. And this is what you add. And you, we'll, I'll show you the, what kind of questions you should ask around that. But the four hours is while they're sleeping, they're not going to notice a little bit of discomfort. But the four hours are going to tell them, hey, this lower incisor keeps wanting to relapse lingually or whatever. And it's going to help the patient understand which teeth have a tendency to relapse more than the others. Third year is during sleeping only. By that time, we're hoping that, uh, you know, every night, every single night. And then after that, you can kind of determine, depending on which teeth may want to move, shift, or whatever, after your equilibration, then you may go to two times per week during sleeping forever. Retention protocol for fixed retainers, monitor and clean them three times a year. Take them out after 10 years, and then you can decide whether you're going to use a removable or whether you're going to want to go back in with a fixed retainer. Many times patients will say, hey, what you don't want to do is take it out and not have a retainer to put in that day. So you don't want to take it out um, and then sort of wait a week or two, get something made, and then, yeah, let me know if those teeth move. No, that's not what you want. You want to make sure you have a system in place, know exactly what you're going to do, and schedule it in that way. The retention protocol for a combination fixed and removable, well, you follow the same thing, as I mentioned, too, for the removable, um, except for this. I don't usually have them wear a fixed retainer and the removable one um, full-time in the beginning. I allow, with an equilibration, I believe that I can, the posterior teeth and what I've planned into my treatment, I believe that I can stabilize the occlusion well enough that they can go to nighttime wear only. So having, they're going to have a fixed retainer in the lower cuspid to cuspid, their removable retainer, then they'll wear at night. If for whatever reason that removable retainer becomes tight and those teeth, you know, they can't get it to fit properly, then most certainly I'm going to go to my other protocol where I'm going to have them wear it full-time. So how do you order and deliver retainers? I mean, how do you actually make all this happen? Well, let's just talk a little bit about this. Retainers can be made in-house or from a commercial lab. Your choice is usually based upon these three things. Having the latest equipment, and I'm not just talking about a regular suck-down machine that you use for bleaching trays and that type of thing. Um, I'm talking about having a good, you know, machine that can actually create a well-adapted retainer. You're also going to have to have somebody in there that can, uh, um, you know, fabricate the retainers, do them well, trim them properly. 
and you're also going to have to have somebody in your office that has the expertise to deliver them. So if you're going to use fixed retainers, you've got to figure out. If you're going to use removable retainers, and you're going to, whatever type you're going to make, especially that spring liner, that's not easy to make. I mean, so if you have somebody in office, you've got to figure out. Most doctors decide to ship it out and use a, a lab. But regardless of what you're going to use, these are three key things. You've got to have great tooth anatomy. You've got to figure out the type and make of the retainer. There's different makes. And you've got to figure out the consistency. Everybody see this. The consistency from one retainer to the next throughout the patient's retainer wear history. You can't have one lab make it one way, another one the other way. I mean, and you've got to make sure that you're using the right material, same materials. It's really important to hold those teeth. The movements you made were fine, very fine movements. Why would we want to put in something that doesn't have that preciseness? So alginate impressions, we know. I mean, and people say, well, no, I pour them up that very second. I actually wrap them. By the time it leaves the patient's mouth, I wrap them in a wet towel. I take it over there. I've got somebody's already mixing the, alge the uh, plaster, and it goes right in there, and it's perfect. How often does that happen? Most of the time, it sits somewhere, distorts. And uh, if you want relapse, as you can see in the lower there, I just kind of took a, a picture of one of my patients from a long time ago where they had Essex retainers. Nothing, it's not the Essex retainer. What it is is it's an alginate impression, and by the time the retainer is delivered, there's that much relapse, that much tooth movement. So I think this day and age, most doctors are going with the proven uh, techniques to, to make sure that they can make, uh, make retainers that are really, really accurate. If nothing else, at least PBS impression materials. And then you need to figure out what kind. I mean, there's obviously, the, I mean, I, the list, oof, we could probably go on all day just talking about different types of retainers. But even this group right here, you've got to figure out. And you've got to think about materials. You've got to understand a little bit about materials. And uh, this is just a comparison, in-house study that was done in Align Technology where they compared Vivera with other similar suck-down type retainers, uh, overlay retainers, and, um, you know, just going through normal wear and tear, wearing them full-time. As you can see, about three months, three and a half months, we start to show all kinds of things happening in there. Some of them it started to show a lot earlier. And what that means is now you've built in space. You've built in areas to allow for relapse. I mean, uh, you can't imagine how many times, uh, oh, say, 20 years ago when I was using a, a different material than what I'm using now, how often the patient would walk in the office with their retainer and I'd say, take it out, and they would pop out like six different pieces because it had cracked in all those different areas. And they were able to get it all in, but it wasn't joined on as a unit. So it was like six different retainers they were wearing. It kept those three or four teeth at that section perfectly straight, but most certainly didn't keep the arch the way it was supposed to. So, you know, when you're talking about removables, it's the same thing when you're talking about fixed retainers. As you can see right here, and I, you know, what's interesting is the one on the lower, if I do use a fixed retainer, I've always kind of stuck with the uh, indirect bonded technique. I never really got good enough on doing the direct bonded technique where you go and put a bunch of um, floss in there and everything and try and bend that wire, actually pull hard on it. It will bend into the alignment of the teeth. Um, to be honest with you, that has been studied, and those teeth do move. Now, they're going to not move to the point where everybody's going to notice it tremendously, but they will shift a little bit. Um, the one I use is a, is a twist wire, uh, and I also started to use the V-loop lingual retainer, and if you want to know more about that one, you can actually go to the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics in January 2005. It's been around for a while. I like it for cleaning. 
and I do like it for it's going to be it's done by a lab and they do send you a little acrylic transfer it's transferred off the buys which is kind of nice too you just got to make sure you isolate everything really really well but what I'm really using today is I'm trying to especially if I'm using Invisalign as a treatment choice I'm trying to make the retainer off of the original data and off of a stage in treatment so rather than taking in new impressions um, there's just so many advantages of if the case finished out perfectly and the you know the aligners and design aligners were fitting perfectly then most certainly you can jump into a retainer it's going to offer you a bunch of advantages I think that I showed you before so let's just talk about understanding how to monitor so the last secret and of course not most certainly not the least but uh, it's nice to know that you know you can keep these patients not only encouraged but also on the straight and narrow and in a re retention protocol. So here are some four things that I always implement. Information from the wear schedule. What do I ask the patient? How do I know what to ask the patient when they're coming in for their retention? Or even if they don't come in, uh, what kinds of questions can I email them? Or what kinds of questions can, uh, can, they, can we answer over the phone? And your staff, team members need to know this very, very well. What to reinforce with the patient? What do we need to tell them you gotta do? How about communicating with ER visit? Anybody familiar with ER visit? Let me show you what that's going to be about here shortly. And setting up a lifetime plan. So when we talk about questions, let's take the first one. Patients are wearing their retainers full time. This is not fixed. This is a removable retainer. They're wearing them full time. And here's a question. Just to, you want to make sure, because if you say, are you wearing it full time? Answer always is yes. But if you say, can you please tell me, and just like the aligners, so if for whatever reason while you're going through treatment if you're using Invisalign or whatever you're using with fixed appliances, you keep using the same phrases over they're going to catch on but you can always modify it a bit but many times you're going to ask this question can you please tell me when you have the retainers out of your mouth and uh, when they start talking about da -da 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 -da, remember you remember I told you 30 minutes probably no longer than that now obviously they can stretch it to an hour but what you're trying to do is set up a system, set up a protocol. At least everybody in the office knows that's what the patient's supposed to be doing. If the patient gives you the answer, well, you know, a lot of times I only wear them at night. And if the teeth are maintaining themselves perfectly, and just go on from there and say, okay. So go on to the second, just as if they were on their second year. Here's a question. What do the retainers feel like when you wear them those few hours? And you don't even say before going to sleep. Oh, these, you know those lower teeth? Tight, real tight. So then I say, well, why don't you wear them full-time? Because the more you move them back and forth, back and forth, there's always a tendency for the teeth not to stabilize themselves. That's why you have to share with your patients from day one the importance in a nice way. Don't make them overburden them so they don't want to go ahead with treatment. You just want to let them know that you have everything under control. Third year, um, you know, it, the second year, as I pointed out there, what's important is to find out if, their teeth, if there's any teeth that are actually uh, wanting to relapse. And then the third year, are there any teeth that feel sore in the morning because they're only wearing them at night? So in other words, you can't, they're not going to feel the soreness in the evening because they only put them in when they go to bed. Oh yeah, when I wake up in the morning and I bite down, this lower incisor and that upper incisor are killing me. So you go back and you have a look at your claim check. You retracted the uppers and you proclined the lowers on an upper spacing, lower crowding case, and maybe you didn't want to do the IPR. And for whatever reasons, you've created this occlusal interference. 
And then you just got to decide what you're going to do at that stage. Now, when they're wearing them two times per week forever, this is what I ask them. Can you get your retainers to seat all the way? In other words, if they've worn aligners or even if they haven't, they've gone through fixed appliances, can you get it to seat all the way? And the patient needs to know what seat all the way is. So let me show you a patient here. If we go from the initial, you can see the posterior bite, and I just circled those there to show you how it's sucked in. Am I concerned that it's exactly class one, this, that? No, it fits. And that's what I wanted to do when I'm done treatment. So we went throughout treatment with the patient, and you can see five years post-treatment wearing, he's wearing Vivera retainers, but you can see how everything's settled in. I showed you the slides before where actually when we finished treatment, he had a little bit of a posterior open bite, but I looked back at the ClinCheck. Everybody listening to me, I looked back at the ClinCheck, and I noticed that I had a little more intrusion of these incisors, but he started with an extremely deep overbite. So what happened was the Vivera retainer made from a stage in treatment continued to move those teeth and is continuing to keep those teeth in that position. In other words, it's building in that overcorrection. It's keeping those teeth in the position that I want them to go. So there is kind of, as I pointed out, there's the initial, there's where we finished. And you see how it's open in the bicuspid and molars? Wow, can you imagine? So even though when I looked at that, I didn't want to go in and make any changes. I didn't want to kind of put an elastic to extrude the posterior teeth. I knew that going into it with a Vivera retainer made in the stage of treatment that I still had tooth movements that hadn't expressed themselves. And you can see after five years, and this is full coverage. People say, oh, bites can't settle with full coverage retainers. No. I'm a firm believer, especially when they're, they're made off of a stage in treatment. Now let me share with you the last thing. It's a concept. It is not something that, remember, these are my ideas. This is not something that's even, you're not even going to find it in Edeline technology. But the way I look at it is with our mobile society, we better figure out some way of being able to monitor retention without having them take up chair time in our office. Just think of how much money you would make if you could not have to see every patient that's in retention. So the ER visit is really a retention monitoring program where the patient would actually take it into their own hands. If they happen to be off at college in California and you happen to be up in Toronto, Canada, they could go in there and they could actually send you iPhone photographs. And so as you can see with this patient, the last one I just showed you there, he sent these photographs, and not bad. I mean, probably uh, almost as good as what I can do with a regular camera. But it's just amazing with the mobile device we have. You can see the midlines are on. You can see the occlusal view, the lower anteriors are lined up nice. You can go back and compare to the, your post-treatment photographs. And here's the process. Simple. And if you do, for whatever reason, he sends you a photograph and he says, Doc, you know, this tooth is really sore at night. Um, or this tooth has a tendency to relapse, you can go back and look and see, did I actually straighten out that tooth? That'd be the first thing you need to look back, and maybe you didn't. Maybe you accepted the, approved the uh, clean check that way, and the, re the retainers were made off of that. But you can always have the patient go back to full-time wear. Say, wear it full-time, and next time you're in town, give me a call, come back in, and um, it could be that your bite's off a little bit in that area. So setting up a lifetime plan, I think we have all the things in place. I don't think it's, it's difficult to manage retention. You know, I, these are just some steps I put in there. Patient will call you when they get to their last retainer. So if you have some retainers in there, and depending on what your philosophy is, uh, if they've got a fixed retainer in there, then most certainly they're going to call you if that happened to come loose or whatever, and they're going to have to monitor that. Much more, much trickier, because if any of those little bonds to each individual teeth come loose, 
and the patient doesn't know about it, there's always a chance of something getting underneath there and causing a little bit of, uh, little bit of trouble, right? And number two is they will make an appointment or send you ER photos and remarks, and the remarks are just the same questions. Remarks will be they will answer the same questions. You will then order another set of, I just use it because I use Vivera, you would order another set of retainers, whatever you're using. And, uh, you know, it's nice because I'll be able to order them right off of my stage of treatment. If not, then you're going to have to plug in there. They will have to come to the office and get an impression. So then you'll ship them to the patient with an instruction, instructional brochure and follow up uh, with an email just to make sure that everything went. The other thing is I based my presentation off of a ton of evidence-based retention information. And so what I'm going to do is I kind of just added this in today, and you wouldn't see that if you had preloaded the slides ahead of time. But I'm going to take that and I'm going to add it in as a PDF file, and it's going to come out as sort of um, rules. What do we know about retention? What is evidence-based? And even though there's a lot that we most that we don't know, I'm going to give you the evidence. The biggest uh, population um, research population that we have is in at the University of Washington, and the fellow's name is Dr. Little. But they really have looked at things over almost 50 years, a half a century, and so I'm going to. Get, try and put that together, um, and I, I, I'll put in there the, the person that helped me with it as well as a, as a resource on that. So um, I look for that to, to come out, and it'll be sort of added on to this, this presentation right here. So I do thank you so much for being here, and think straight. Um, most certainly, uh, the power of the mind, right? Same with the patients. Think those teeth straight. And, of course, thinking straight means having the right retention program in place. I want to thank Dr. Brandon again for a great presentation, for all of you for taking time out of your Friday to join us. We look forward to seeing you on another AMC Expert webinar. Thanks very much.